Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? My name is Michal Oshman, and I'm your host. My guest today was born in Bristol, England, studied English literature at the University of Oxford, practiced law, and worked in London as a lawyer. It all seemed to be going so well and on track, but reality was very different. In Sean's own words, I had a complete implosion. I quit my job. I moved back to Bristol and came out as a trans woman. In her book, The Transgender Issue, Sean Fay shines a spotlight on the obstacles, the difficulties, the stigma that so many trans people endure and experience in their lives. I love when you say, what I hope people take away from this book is that the liberation of trans people would help everyone in society. Everyone. Sean is naturally honest and open and fun because I got a chance to meet you before. And you really are transforming the difficult experiences that many trans people have of feeling unseen, unsafe, disconnected, to having an experience of feeling connected and clear and understood. Welcome, Sean Fay. How did you transform fear to purpose? Sean, there's so much I want to ask you about, but we have less than an hour. It's all about you and your mission and your journey through the lens of what this podcast is trying to do, answering the question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And because you represent a person that, uh, at least from the outside, knows how to be fearless, one of the things I'd like to ask you, and just take a minute to reflect, if we could go on a time machine device and you could take me back to uh, who you were and where you were maybe five years ago and who you were and where you were maybe 10 years ago and then where you are and who you are now. What would that journey look like? What are the different stops? Yeah, um, it's an interesting, <laughs> very interesting question because both those answers to five and 10 years ago are very different. Five years ago, so I suppose we would have been thinking we're in the end of 2021 now, so the end of 2016. I, uh, it's interesting that it's that year that this question falls on. I, at that time, five years ago, was struggling a lot, actually. I was very isolated at the time. I had had a huge mental health crisis that had lasted about two years. I had seriously contemplated taking my own life. And I don't say that to be dramatic, but it was that bad. At that point, I had realised my gender identity, but that didn't mean that all the problems associated with it had vanished. In fact, many of them had worsened um, because I was dealing with society head on. Mm. I was dealing with a lot of the sense of anger with myself and with the world that comes with that, with realising that you've been lost for a long time about something very specific and fundamental to your personhood. I'd also struggled a lot in my mid-twenties with drugs and alcohol, and that had certainly contributed to my mental health problems. It certainly damaged a lot of relationships in my life and seemed to 
yeah, affect a lot of my capacity to function, really. I was really quite lost. I was struggling to know what my purpose in life was. And at that time, I think really life seemed like kind of a bit of a wreckage five years ago. It was a real low point, actually. I think the person that I was just then five years ago probably wouldn't recognize me now in a good way, I think. I think I've changed a lot. I think I've evolved a lot. I think I'm still a work in progress. But also, it wasn't just that I was a complete victim either. As I say, I think I had destructive tendencies at that time too, towards myself and towards, well, it's like a hurricane that catches people around you too. There were also plenty of things at that time that I wasn't very proud of myself for, that my own behaviour and produced as well, frankly. And yeah, a lot of my growth since then has been yeah, about trying to lead not just a healthier life for myself, but one that's more positive in the world. Mm. It's very deep. Um, <laughs> 10 years ago, yeah, I mean, completely unrecognisable. So that was before this breakdown and maybe some of the things had worsened. Things got worse for me before they got better. But 10 years ago, I was, yeah, I was still very lost. I was obviously at that time still I'm very unsure of my identity. I mean, I was living in a different gender. I was essentially presenting to the world as a sort of like young-ish man, although that was becoming increasingly difficult. Um, Yeah, that was after university. So I was training to be a lawyer at the time, (laughs) uh, working as a paralegal. And so when I look at that person now, really no clue about where life was taking me. And obviously that led itself to crisis soon enough. But professionally, personally, Again, very lost, but not so aware of how lost I was. I think I had the youthful certainty that things were going to fall into place somehow, that whatever was off about my gender, whatever was off about the path in life I was taking, like taking a career path that was quite ostensibly prestigious to other people, but not really suited to me. And yeah, I'm just amazed when I think about that person now, how little they knew really about themselves, about how little they knew about their flaws, but also their strengths, how often fearful they were. I was a huge people pleaser when I was younger. Um, I was constantly trying to deform myself to fit into an acceptable life to my own values at that time, but also, I guess, for society. And yeah, really had no sense of direction in the world. I often felt, and I still do actually, I often felt very out of step. I felt behind or regressed compared to like my friends, peers, I felt there was something very fundamentally wrong with me when I was 23. And I guess there was a variety of reasons for that. But one of them was just, yeah, there was like something that I hadn't caught up. There was something missing. Mm. And yeah, I suppose I struggled with that quite silently at the time, 10 years ago. If that takes us to now, um, yeah, I mean, I still am someone that, you know, and I think the pandemic has revealed to a lot of us all, things that we're still struggling with in silence. As you said earlier, I think I may seem fearless. It's quite, I I did chuckle because I may seem fearless to other people, but I've still had to confront a lot of the ways in which I'm ruled by fear. I'm someone that still has struggles with mental health and still someone that struggles a lot with guilt and shame about the past and sometimes about feelings of internalized shame about who I am. But I think where the hope comes is that I have a much greater self-knowledge now. I do ask for help and I have a better, I hate the term support system. I have a greater kind of collective of empathy in my life with the people around me. And I've surrounded myself with better people in terms of people who are supportive to me 
and to whom I don't feel as vulnerable asking for help and trusting. Not always perfectly. I struggle to trust people sometimes. But those things mean that although that a lot of the internal difficulties I have are the same and remain unchanged or, you know, they're kind of baseline tendencies, my framework for dealing with them is much better. And therefore, I think on balance, it's not like I lead, a, you know, no one leads a eminently happy life. I mean, I think that's one of the things too, isn't it? It's that often when we're younger, we're kind of, especially if you struggle with depression or mental health or a variety of things or shame connected to identity, you're kind of partly a little bit bratty in that you wonder why you're not leading a, a really, really happy life. And part of the emotional maturity or spiritual maturity I've gained is recognising that no one's life is happy all the time. <laughs> what you're asking for in general is more of just an even keel and accepting that all emotions are temporary. Bad times tend to be temporary, as do really, really good times and euphoria and joy and trying to accept those things in the moment. And that's really hard for me to live in the present. It's something I've struggled with a lot. I tend to either fantasize about the future, which has been, which has been, I think, the source of a lot of my achievements in life, right from school, is that if you are somewhat of a fantasist who dissociates from the present and lives in a kind of fantasy of the future, it can be highly motivating to be like a huge overachiever. But then on attaining whatever goal you've set for yourself, you oddly feel dissatisfied. Similarly, if you live in the past a lot, which I can also do, it can be really hard to experience any kind of growth because you keep yourself back mired in the past and regret and and anger and resentment as well. And I've had to learn to let go of a lot of those things too. And that's an ongoing process. Sorry, very deep answers, I hope. No, I could listen to you seriously. I, I, listen, I know we're not physically now in the same place. We're having this conversation over Zoom, but I feel like I'm with you in the room. I feel like I'm feeling you mm -hmm. and I have so much in common. And I, that's why I just want to listen to you because I'm learning through listening to you and how you took me on that 10 years back, five years back and where you are now. It's so clear. It doesn't make it easier and it's still complex, but you are on a journey in a big way. And I'm grateful that you share part of this journey in your book. And I think your book, The Transcendure Issue, An Argument for Justice, is a must read. And I found myself, uh, you know, really being fascinated by the different personas that make you who you are. And I think uh, just by sharing those last 10 years of your life, we understand better what you've been through. But also there's a lot of strength there. And I know all of us want to be a bit stronger to find that strength inside of us. So I feel like you're doing it for me now. There's so many questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to focus on a few main areas. You spoke about fear. We already spoke about fear. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by is the notion that we're all here for a reason. Call it faith, call it spirituality. But one of my favorite sayings is the day you were born was the day that the world was missing you. And when I grew up, I didn't feel that way. I felt I'm here by chance, right? And when I discovered that there's things that you can't see, but you can choose to believe in, I realized I'm here for a reason and we're all here for a reason. So if we think about this big phrase of the day you were born was the day that the world was missing you and every single day the world continues to miss you, Sean, specifically, 
What do you feel now at this point is your purpose, is your role? Like, what is the world needing of you right now? I grew up in a religious house-ish, culturally Roman Catholic, and was quite religious when I was younger as a teenager, and then I kind of abandoned it when I was about 17 or 18. And now I actually, in my 30s, have returned to a kind of spiritual understanding of the world where I think if you'd asked me even a couple of years ago that question, I would have been like, I don't know what I think about this. I would have worried it sounded a bit messianic to think that you have a purpose in the world. However, I have come to that belief. The reason being is because I've dealt a lot with a feeling of emptiness. I think it's a condition of modernity, actually, is that with the disappearance of spirituality from our lives and so much injustice in the world and seemingly random events, including the one that we're living through as a human species right now, is, you know, despite my left wing politics and wanting to transform the world politically, there was an emptiness there about what really is the fundamental purpose. And I recognized that I had not having an answer for that or not having something consistent to believe in meant that I still had that need to believe that I existed for a reason. And all I would do is find something else that was more destructive to be my reason. So for example, for a long time, I sought like romantic relationships with men, romantic and sexual relationships with men as a as a source of not just like validation is actually probably too weak. It's like um, a source of meaning for like if, if someone else loved me in a romantic way or I was in a relationship where someone saw me with the eyes of love, then it meant that I had a reason to be, you know, and, and, and but obviously relationships might come and go. People are fallible. And I took those things really, really hard. I know everyone takes like breakups really hard. I'm not saying, but I think it was that there was a profound sense of loss sometimes about what my life meant without those things. So now I guess what I think my meaning is in the world, uh, probably the things I've accepted a kind of humbler role, which is odd considering that my work is very public, but because I don't like the kind of pedestal that people like me, i.e. people from minorities who make work in the public domain, often are attributed some kind of specific role that can feel like leadership or teaching others. That's quite overwhelming too and quite isolating because you're put on a pedestal and you're fallible too. And actually in the time that I've been having in my career, it's made me reflect more on like, well, what is my role? I don't think I was put here to educate people or lead people or teach people. I don't have those kind of grandiose Desire. Sometimes I do. I mean, realistically, sometimes it can be quite grandiose. But I think it's looking at my personal life and looking where the consistency comes from. And it tends to come from trying to be of service to other people, to love other people in my actions. And those people by nature in a human life will be the people around you. Obviously, I think my work and my writing is done to assist people I've never met and will never meet through my writing. But my writing is almost becomes a a book becomes a separate entity to use quite quickly anyway. So more tangibly in my own life, I think it's about I'm here to to yeah to I suppose to be an instrument of compassion in the world and empathy and love and all the things that I times felt I lacked myself. I can provide those to other people wherever possible, and in doing so, I feel those things myself when I have often felt a lack of them. Mm. You're making huge impact with the messages. And I know you didn't define yourself as an educator or a teacher, but 
There is an element of education as well that I found super helpful and useful in your book. One of the things that I and millions and millions of others care about is belonging, is feeling that, you know, you belong to wherever you are, whoever you're with. And I wanted to ask you where you are in your life at the moment. Where do you feel you belong? I'm working on a project at the moment, a writing project, let's just say that, which may never come to fruition. And it's about a lot of the personal relationships I've had in my life, my love life, my friendships, family. And the working title I've had for it in my head is Love in Exile. The exile, in exile, referring to an internal feeling I've had of being in exile and not belonging. And I think as painful as it is for me to have had to face, a lot of my life was marked by a profound sense of not belonging and not being sure where I belong. And that could be anything from the fact that I went to an all boys school, you know, that was a very profound sense of not belonging for obvious reasons. Two, mm, even when I first came out as LGBTQ, I came out as gay. And then I moved into kind of a gay male community, if you like, for want of a better term. Had a lot of friends who weren't trans people, but were LGB. And I didn't belong there either. And I knew I didn't belong there either. And there was a real sadness, I remember, at that time. So if we're talking about the 10 years ago, I remember feeling quite confused about the fact that I thought, I'd worked everything out and I still didn't belong. And then I guess more recently, some of the ideas I've had to grapple with is, so I, you know, I am a woman, but I don't belong in society's schema of what a woman should be in every way. I, you know, I'm 33, I can't have children, nor do I want them. I've lost relationships because of that. I don't have this uh, schedule. And a lot of women don't, it's not just about being trans, but you know, I don't belong in society's idea of what I should be doing at this point in my life. If I'm not going to have children, maybe I might not get married. Maybe I will. Who knows? I am single currently. You know, that sense of where do I belong is something I grapple with all the time. And I think, again, a bit like the happiness question is you have to look around and accept that that can be fluid and that you can belong in different ways to different people. I've come to really value my friendships more and more, and they've changed a lot. Friendship to me when I was younger used to be like people you did things with. And I used to see it in that quite detached way, like almost people who were like your colleagues socially, <laughs> like you would do things like go out or go to clubs or drink with them or whatever. And now what I'm realising are is what friendship has become to me is a place of belonging. Yeah, that you create for yourself, that you get to select the people who you belong to. And it's a different kind of belonging to these heteronormative ideas of like belonging to your romantic partner or belonging to the nuclear family or belonging to, I don't know. I mean, I don't think people really believe they belong. Some people do feel they belong in their careers, but I don't really belong in the media either. Like, you know, I'm, there are very few trans women when I look around doing what I do. So yeah, so my friendships are about choosing who to belong to. And allowing that. And, and so I've realized, you know, I've had so many changes in my life, whether it's like when I transitioned, I realized I needed to find people who understood that because they'd experienced it too. And I didn't have any of those people in my life. Single women in their 30s who aren't having children are people who understand me in a way that a lot of people don't. And my life experience now, people who, who are sober understand me in a way. There are lots of 
ways in which I have to cut. Belonging is something, I think it's that you have to realise belonging is something you have to work at. I realised that I was only just making myself miserable and aggrieved by feeling like I never belonged anywhere. And that perhaps that's just because of my circumstances and perhaps a sense of belonging is easier for some people than it is for others. But I could choose the people to belong to. And that's actually quite powerful because I think there are so many people who walk through the world who perhaps it is on the face of it easier who they should belong to, but it's fallen into their lap and actually they're deeply unhappy. Whether that's people, you know, in unhappy relationships. I remember um, having an ex-boyfriend who, you know, had these friends from school, these very masculine laddie friends. And they'd just been friends because they'd always been friends. But actually those friends, you know, they were quite stigmatising of, like, for example, the fact that he was dating me. These were the people that he supposedly belonged to, but often they were the source of a lot of shame and it was quite unthinking. And because he had been a straight cis man, he never really had to think about that he was a white cis straight man. So, I mean, he's the human default. And whilst it was probably harder for me to have that lack of sense of belonging, in some ways it does mean that I've ended up with people around me who I've chosen based on their values. And often it meant that he had defaulted into being surrounded with people who didn't necessarily understand his uniqueness and his individuality. It totally makes sense. And you just reminded me that a while ago, I had a conversation with a friend who is married with children and we spoke about loneliness and belonging. And she was like, I'm so lonely and I so don't belong. There's children and a partner around me and it seems like I belong here for sure. Or my Facebook maybe says that I am not lonely and I fit in but I don't. So as you said, we should never also make assumptions to, you know, assume that if someone looks like they are belonging somewhere, we never know how people are feeling. And actually feeling like you belong in your own skin, I feel like it's a huge win. I mean, it took me many years to feel like I belong in myself, you know, let alone with the world. And I also think what you said is beautiful. And this is me saying it in my own words. Maybe belonging is a little bit like joy and happiness. You don't have it all the time. You have like those lows, those moments, those kind of magical snippet, like that unique moment when you feel, oh, I belong here. This is special. And then the next thing happens. I don't want to go all pop psychology on you, but it feels like you're in this inner tension between maybe want to protect you and your internal world and your your life, I guess. So a tension between that to what you feel like the world maybe needs you to be for it at the moment and the role that you're playing for your readers and for your followers. So um, I'll be following you for sure, Sean, and to see how you evolve. And as you said in the beginning, you're an ever-evolving human, mm. which I think is inspiring and, and, and beautiful and something we can all learn from. One of the things that um, I am fascinated by is about the idea of making space for others and making space for others, not in a physical way, but existentially, right? And one of the things that I learned is that if we don't make space for others, then it's all about us and we fall in love with our own ideas and we don't make space for diversity of voices. Through your work and through your mission, who or what are you making space for? What are you kind of pushing aside so society makes space for more? You know, obviously my work is quite transparent that I am trying 
to be part of a movement which creates space for transgender people. That's a huge role. And also for anyone who falls out of, like gender is one of many ordering principles about insiders and outsiders. So any kind of gender outlaw or outsider, obviously knowing that it's had a huge effect on the shape and destiny of my life, I'm trying to create more space in the world for that. And then by extension, anyone that's kind of considered an outsider, not just in gender, but in any way. So my work is about that. And it's also about kind of trying to break that binary of like insider and outsider about not just people making space for others with a capital O in the sense of people who are othered, but also about making space within themselves as well for, you know, if we look at gender, it's a system that requires a quite a violent repression of lots of people's happiness, lots of people's self-determination. And so I'm definitely interested in creating space for people who aren't necessarily othered in that way. Yes, to create space for us, but also to create space amongst themselves for the fact that many of the things that have troubled other people about me in my life have been more about them than they have been about me. Whether that's the fact that I was walking through when I was 13 and I was walking through with a kind of lispy little feminine voice in an all-boys school where they were all kind of like being socialised into a teenage masculinity that didn't really allow any kind of vulnerability or any kind of sexual fluidity, that that was an immediate affront to that, whether it's the fact that people who harass me online is that they seem to be much more bothered about the fact that perhaps they don't like the fact that like if I put a picture of myself on Instagram where it seems like I have any kind of pride in my appearance, it's about a society that's perhaps made them feel like they fail at femininity or beauty standards or whatever. Or if it's like family members of people I've dated where I trouble them, the fact that I'm dating their son troubles them because they have a very fixed heterosexual narrative in their head about what their children mean to them, what the purpose of them having children was and what their children should be doing with their lives. And that involves getting married and having children. And so them being with a infertile transsexual does not fit into that. You know, these are the things that I have encountered and, and they're more about people's lack of creating space for me is about the fact that they haven't allowed themselves a degree of space. And so I would like to encourage other people to do that. And yeah, and in a more personal way, creating space for other people. I'm interested in allowing space for the grey areas. I mean, I've recently come off Twitter and I engage less and less with social media because one of the things I didn't like is that we seem to have come to this sort of understanding of, you know, social justice and things like that, but we don't allow space for people to be fallible. I think we're very black and white. This is a good person. This is a bad person. This is a good way to behave. This is a bad way to behave. And sadly, not everyone falls into that. There's a lot of grey areas. There are people who've done, said awful things in their lives who can grow and change from that. And people who have the potential to be better than perhaps their worst behaviours. And there are people who can do very good things and do very awful things at the same time. And there can be people who are fabulous activists, but difficult friends. And for me, I guess I'm interested in creating space for people understanding the frailty of our humanity, having an existing ethical framework and a social justice framework to individual behaviour, sure. But allowing within that a more radical capacity for people to change. And in order to do that, you know, we can't rely constantly on only talking to people who agree with us already only engaging with the people or holding up people that have had a spotless life. 
believing that people's politics are the same as their moral character, you know, all of these sort of grey areas. I'm interested in creating space in my own life for more nuance always. And that's become more and more important to me as I've gotten older. Black and white thinking never got me anywhere. It only made me very unhappy uh, in any aspect of my life. And I think for now, in politics and in ethics, I think that something I'm really interested in is ambiguity, contradiction, and accepting people as full human beings and not making them emblems of how I'd like the world to be. I'm so grateful for your honesty, your vulnerability, but also for like how you articulate your mission so well. You just make it so clear what you're here to do. So um, thank you for sharing that with us. And I know I made some maybe assumptions in the beginning of our conversation that you come across as fearless or that you are very experienced in overcoming your fear. I want to ask you the question, which is the title of my book, which is what would you do if you weren't afraid? So in this point in your life, on this very, very special journey that you're on, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Is there any fear that you haven't overcome at the moment? <laughs> I mean, again, fear is a, you overcome fear every day. In my experience, in many ways, I feel I've I've ruled by fear. A lot of the worst things that have happened to me in my life have either made me governed by fear or are a product of the fact that I've led a fearful life, fear of letting people down, fear of speaking out, fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of ostracization. So overcoming fear, fearlessness isn't an innate quality that you have. I think fearlessness is a... It's a behavior. It's an action. It's doing something in spite of. Fear is an emotion, but it isn't an action. It's an impediment to action, usually, is how I experience fear. Fear dwells in silence. Fear dwells in isolation. Fear dwells in disconnection from others. And so, yes, I'm still very fearful about many things. And I have to choose to overcome my fear probably every day in some ways, sometimes in very small ways, sometimes in very big ways. And the way that I do that is through taking an action, not through, I can't think my way out of fear, sat on my own, like how to be less fearful. And the action can vary. Sometimes it can be talking to someone about it. Sometimes it can be asking for help. Sometimes it can be uh, getting through the next hour, getting through the next minute. Sometimes it can be, you know, I'm a spiritual person, so sometimes it can be asking the universe or God or prayer or whatever you want to ask for help, something outside of myself. Sometimes it's asking another human being. Sometimes it's understanding that the fear is justified and that I can't act right now. And that sometimes the fear is justified and the fear is keeping me safe. And that's a difficult thing too, to recognize how fear is an primal instinct that keeps us safe. But unfortunately, I think we learn very young, yeah, fear keeps us safe. But to not be ruled by fear is a different matter because while things can keep us safe at certain points in our lives, they can start to become a source of difficulty, pain, toxicity if we are ruled by fear all the time. So I don't aim to eliminate fear completely from my life because sometimes fear has actually kept me safe and it's good to have healthy respect for fear. What am I fearful of now? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm still hugely fearful of abandonment. I fear being alone. Where I've changed my perspective on that is what does being alone mean? Because as you mentioned with your friend, you can have all the accoutrements that say you won't be lonely and you can be very alone. You know, fear of pain, emotional pain, fear of abandonment, fear of being alone. These things do rule my life and I remain fearful of them. Sometimes it's a matter of just not thinking too far ahead and thinking, how do I build a life where 
there is enough connection with others that I don't consistently feel alone. You know, you can't get to a point where you're like, I'm going to be alone in the next like hour or whatever, particularly in these times we're living in, because that leads to quite immediate gratification and often using other people to feel less lonely. Something that probably I have done before in the past, regrettably, the fear of being alone is less about how do I try and control the situation so that other people will be around me and more about how do I make myself of use to other people that they want to be around me and that I feel connected to them and therefore I don't have to be physically around them to be less lonely. And yeah, fear of being alone, I would say, is the prominent, and I don't mean physically alone, I mean fear of being abandoned, of finding myself alone in the world. It's something that I probably do battle with on a daily basis, to be really deeply honest. You're amazing. And thank you so much, Sean, for your honesty. Seriously, I... I I'm grateful for how you trusted me and you brought your full self to this conversation and you shared your journey and your experiences and your learnings and you also educated us. So I will be, as I said, following you, regardless if it's social media or not. I want to hear how you're doing and how you're taking the book and its messages to the US and the wider world. And I wish you all the best of luck and success and joy. And thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It was really special to hear Sean really being so vulnerable and honest about that fear, the fear of being alone or loneliness. And that doesn't mean being alone physically, but more about like how you feel within yourself and that it's an ongoing fear for her. And I think it was really almost encouraging to hear that even though we overcome big challenges and big bridges and make big changes in our lives, there are some things that are fundamental part of who we are and they might always stay who we are, but we know that we can overcome them step by step. It was truly inspiring to hear Sean's, like her own tips on how to overcome fear Sometimes it's just to wait until the fear passes. Sometimes it's to call a friend. Sometimes it's to acknowledge that she's afraid for a reason and that this fear is here to protect her. You know, sometimes is to believe and is to pray. The other strong reflection point I have, and I know, Sean, this is part of your, I guess, agenda or mission is empathy. How can I be more empathetic to people and experiences that are different to my own experiences. How can I continue to learn always about other people's experiences? How can I educate myself, my family, my community, and always be curious and always be empathetic? That's definitely a, a development area and a reflection for myself. So as you know, If you change nothing, nothing will change. Albert Einstein said that, but I'm borrowing this every day from him. If we want to see change in our lives, it's not enough to want it. But what are you going to do differently in order to change your life or a part of your life? So let me leave you with a couple of coaching questions connected to what we heard today from Sean. One coaching question is about taking action. What is a part of your journey, your life, an opportunity that you have, a choice that you're considering that deep inside you know you have to take action on? 
It might take you out of your comfort zone. It might come with small risk, hopefully not too big, because then that's probably not the right thing to do. But deep inside, you need to act. What needs to happen and how can you help yourself take action? And by the way, taking action isn't just about correcting or improving something for your own life. What about correcting or improving something for someone else's life? What are you going to do about that? Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? My name is Michal Oshman, and our incredibly brave, honest, and empathetic guest today was Sean Fay. You can read about Sean Fay in her different platforms. You can follow her on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. But a good place to start would be to purchase her book, The Transgender Issue by Sean Fay. Thank you so much for all the incredible people that make this podcast happen. Thank you to our executive producer, Alex Hollins, Carrie Luter, our head of production, Leo Schick, our assistant producer, and Lucy Ditchmont, who is producing this show for Storyglass. Thank you so much. If you'd like to find out more about the concepts that we speak about on our podcast, about your soul, about how to find meaning, about replacing fear with purpose, you are welcome to purchase my book or download What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid by Michal Oshman. That's me. And I'd love to get your feedback on our podcast. So please do share, review, give me feedback so we can grow and improve 